0: Welcome back everyone. In today's episode, Plutarch takes us through the life of Caius Marcius, who would later have Coriolanus added as his surname, and will be referred to here on out as Coriolanus. Coriolanus was a member of the infamous patrician Marcii house, who have always been very active in Roman high society, reaching the higher Roman power with past kings, noblemen, censors, and senators and some of their past flock. Any young Marcii male would enter the world with a great expectation for their future accomplishments for Rome and adding to the Marcii legacy. As a culture, young Roman men would emulate and shadow their father's careers and fame, and when the time was right, would branch off starting their own legacy to make their father and house proud with glory for Rome as their driving principles. Now, of course, this assertion that this is all the Romans cared about is a simplification, But most historians present and past tend to agree that an overarching Roman motivator was always the glory of Rome, and to pander to this was never in bad taste. However, this notion of glory to Rome was likely more prominent for the patricians and elite who didn't have to worry as much about where their next meal was coming from, or whether they had to work 16-hour days in the fields or fill the front lines of Rome's many wars. The elite, therefore, had a culture of their own, Where they felt they organized Roman resources to better Rome mainly for themselves and bring honor to their great houses, and were in their minds the de facto caretakers of the commons. Here the commons are known as the plebs. So while many commons would rise over the centuries to prominence, the commons likely had less of this ingrained culture of glory for Rome built into their daily lives, and was not so intertwined with perceived success for one's life. The elite in Rome may have felt they were the protectors of Rome and were the only ones capable to do so, and the commons were merely the suppliers of resources they needed to organize Rome for future and ongoing success and glory. So why do I make this distinction between cultures within Roman society? Well, it's very important to be able to delve into the mind frame of the people we are discussing on our show, and I think Plutarch understood that, as in most cases, he was writing about these figures many centuries later, where customs and traditions likely in some cases were much different. As we will see, what motivates Coriolanus vastly differs from what motivates the commoners, and this episode is all about these differences and how some things just never change, such as human nature and how the past plus time leads to similar results. Coriolanus lost his father either before his birth or within the first few years of his life. Plutarch only indicates he grew up as a Roman orphan raised by his widower mother. In these times, if a child had no father, he or she was considered an orphan, though they could still be raised by their biological mother. Unlike today, generally, female Romans had little prominence or say in family affairs, and all achievements of a male child would typically be in the name of the father, reflecting on both father and son. So if no father to honour, and no father to help build a pathway to promise for Coriolanus, his path to greatness would need to be carved out by himself. Plutarch describes a young Coriolanus who, early on, realized his disadvantages for only having his mother to raise him, and being known as an orphan, which made him extremely motivated to what we would perhaps describe today as proving everyone wrong.
1: So Coriolanus had a chip on his shoulder. Like when a teacher tells a pupil today they won't amount to anything, and then they become like a
0: Steve Jobs or something later in life. (laughs) Haha, yep, exactly. Or Seinfeld's version of revenge. Living well... To which George replies, "No chance in that." No. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's not shed any tears for the young Coriolanus and keep things in perspective. While Coriolanus may have been an orphan with no father to honor, the Marcii were still an immensely wealthy patrician Roman family, and any commons would, at a blink, switch places with Coriolanus, as he would still have large advantages over most Romans not graced with a patrician household name. Plutarch describes a young Coriolanus as very active, very athletic dominated in wrestling, began training for war much earlier than most, which combined with the mentality of not having a father to honor, quickly developed a deep sense of duty and honor, where he strove to outshine the rest, to perhaps make up for not having those patrician advantages other young boys, men, may have had that he was competing against. I think there is a unique overachieving psychology developing in Coriolanus, which Plutarch wants us to take note of as his story unfolds and perhaps providing some explanation for how Coriolanus' career and life would unfold. Coriolanus would get his first shot to prove himself worthy of the Marseillae house name as a young teenager, aged 13 or 14, in the last great battle between the New Republic and the last tyrant Superbus, who, as you might remember, had been exiled and in his Battle of the Bulge moment, made one last attempt to secure his throne. Plutarch tells us young Coriolanus, in an act of valor, saved a fellow Roman soldier from being killed, which was witnessed by many and after the battle was crowned with a garland of oaken branches for his valour. These crowning achievements are like a soldier today receiving a medal for some act of heroism in war and gave Coriolanus a solid victory and achievement under his name. And he would always come home from future wars with similar accolade.
1: It's funny, a 13 or 14 year old today is considered a child and society places very little expectations on them but I'm thinking a thirteen-year-old Coriolanus could probably kick both of our asses,
0: Chris. I, I I don't doubt that. You don't I don't doubt that at all. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Nope, neither am I. Typically, such a feat in recognition of military valor traditionally would be celebrated by both the father and son. However, with no father, and due to a deep respect and bond with his mother, Coriolanus strived to provide his mother with this traditional gratitude and honor. Plutarch notes that Coriolanus was so close with his mother that she lived with him even after he married and had children. Coriolanus's reputation, integrity, and courage in the army were not going unnoticed by the patrician and senatorial classes. With a major rift growing between the Senate and the Commons over creditor practices, Coriolanus now found an opportunity to enter politics and test his newfound respect in the upper echelons of Roman power circles. He sided with the Senate and creditors, exclaiming that this sort of sedition, as honest as it appears, was not about money, at least for the Senate, and needs to be quickly stomped out before a violent revolt broke out. Now, Plutarch doesn't mention whether Coriolanus was for or against a more aggressive resolution, but the Senate decided to send their most charismatic and trusted senators of the commoners, as Plutarch says, end quote, to walk in their shoes and to speak their language, end quote. Kuchuk attempts to showcase the immense strains the Commons were under, and how their frustrations came to a head when the Senate ruled in favour of the wealthy creditors to allow them to continue to treat debtors as ATM machines, through aggressive asset seizures and enslavement when loans fell behind. The Commons' anger is understandable, and bore out of mistrust, as they were told that their grievances would be addressed before the last war, but once it ended, the Senate ruled against them and further negotiations were going nowhere. Plutarch describes this moment as the straw that broke the camel's back for the commoners. They had enough. In what I like to call a silent revolt, they peacefully set up camp on the Holy Mount to protest their treatment in Roman society overall and refused the new call-to-arms order from the Senate. Once the Senate dispatched the negotiators to the mount, the commoners laid out their many grievances, ranging from food shortages to being pushed out of desirable areas of Rome to make way for patrician development, to how cruelly they are treated by wealthy creditors, who the commoners fight and die for almost annually. It was his last grievance, and the Senate decision to allow these aggressive debt collection practices to continue, which was the driving force of this silent revolt. Where Plutarch describes how the commoners felt they were being squeezed by the Senate, where their requirements for participating in Rome's ever-escalating and frequent wars caused them much less time to tend to economic activities, Required to pay for their debts, they may have acquired to get their trade off the ground in the first place.
1: So it sounds like the Roman commoners are dealing with rising debt, gentrification, and having to serve in the military. I mean, other than the military obligation part, it sounds like commoners' problems today.
0: Yeah, exactly. And if anyone is a Goodfellas fan starring Robert De Niro, perhaps the FU pay me scene comes to mind when trying to understand the predicament the commoners found themselves. Went to war to protect us, and your crops were not able to be tended, and when you came back you were broke? F you pay me. Obviously, something had to give. In a sense, I feel like the commoners were trying to tell the Senate, you can't have it both ways. Where commoners are expected to fight, while their crops and businesses are left to fail, while they are out campaigning, they are still required to pay their debts, and if not, creditors can enrich themselves on seizing their assets and enslaving them in some cases. Okay, we digress. Let's get back to the revolt on the mount. The most popular senator with the commons at the time listened intently to their grievances and proceeded to masterfully woe the commons through an attempt of plain speaking or walking in their shoes, which swept up the crowd on the mount and ended his speech with a famous Roman fable as Plutarch quotes. It once happened, he said, that all the other members of a man mutinied against the stomach which they accused as the only idle, uncontributing part in the whole body. While the rest were put to hardships and the expense of much labor to supply and minister to its appetites, the stomach, however, merely ridiculed the silliness of the members, who appeared not to be aware that the stomach certainly does receive the general nourishment, but only to return it again and redistribute it amongst the rest. Such is the case, he said, ye citizens between you and the Senate end quote:
1: I don't know, Chris. It kind of sounds like the Senator is espousing some kind of ancient trickle-down theory to the commoners. I'm not sure if they'll buy
0: it. Yeah, maybe they shouldn't have. However, the Senate was actually able to woo them, and a great reconciliation between the Senate and commoners occurred. The Senate agreed to the demands of the commoners for annual elections of five protectors of the Commons. In later centuries, these protectors would be known as the tribunes of the people and hence completed the basic structure of the Roman Republic where the people now would have direct representation in the Senate and Roman high society to a recognized common body. It's during this episode of reconciliation where Plutarch begins to show perhaps Coriolanus's true colors. The open question whether Coriolanus was for a more aggressive posture with the commoners became clearer after the tribune of the people is confirmed by the Senate. Coriolanus, as Plutarch describes, was not pleased how easily the commons had pushed over the Senate and sought out those senators who perhaps were not pleased with the recent concessions either, and implored them not to yield to the commoners, but to proceed to show their superiority to the commons, not just in power and riches, but to merit and worth to Rome itself. This distinction is important to keep in mind as we enter the next parts of the story. Where Coriolanus, up to this point in his life, had strived to show up his senatorial contemporaries and proved he didn't need a father to rise to prominence, he now shifted this mentality of competition and win at all costs to the commons, and developing a perhaps not new, but more public disdain for commoners that previously men of the republic perhaps kept out of the public sphere and left for a more private setting. So even with Coriolanus's hostility growing towards the commoners, Rome appeared to be loosely united once again. A new representative body was created for the commoners, and the Republic greatly moved forward through its creation. The Senate had no issue now filling the ranks of the legions and marching off to face the Volscian nation who the Romans had been butting heads with for some time now. The consul for the year commoners led Rome's legions to the capital city of Corioli, where he proceeded to split the army into two, one section to prepare and siege the capital, the other to head off a rumored reinforcement army inbound to the capital a few days march away. The plan was to catch the incoming Volscian army by surprise, defeat them, then turn back and rejoin the siege. This sort of battle maneuver was not uncommon during a siege, where Roman armies had to continuously, throughout the centuries, peel off soldiers from a siege of a town to head off a reinforcement army. So this was a standard tactic, and really would have been a normal war, with the Romans likely defeating the Volscian flank. And the combined army successfully sieging the city. However, as the war broke out, Coriolanus was still in disbelief the Senate had not heeded his warnings not to negotiate with the Commons in such a favorable manner, and likely saw the formation of the Tribune as a threat to the Senate's legitimacy as the only group who had the stones to protect Rome. Plutarch says, and quote, As for Marcius, Though he was not a little vexed himself to see the populace prevail so far and gain ground of the senators, and might observe many other patricians have the same dislike of the late concessions, he yet besought them not to yield at least to the common people in the zeal and forwardness they now they now allow for their country's service, but to prove that they were superior to them, not so much in power and riches as in merit and worth. This sums up Coriolanus' mindset going into the war. He was not so much worried about defeating the Volscians, but was more concerned with showing the commoners just how much they needed the Senate and the elite power structure supporting it.
1: So it sounds like Coriolanus is going into this war with something to prove. Story of his life so far, I
0: guess. 100%. So if commonists and part of the army headed to protect the Roman flank, Titus Larius was left in charge of the siege. Plutarch implies that Titus was the bravest soldier Rome had at the time and likely Coriolanus wanted the chance to show him up along with the commons he would be fighting next to. Before Titus could begin the siege, the Volscian army protecting Corioliae launched a surprise attack on the Romans, putting them to heel and falling back to their trenches. With a Roman defeat or major setback afoot, Coriolanus launches a wild yet deliberate counterattack, which Roman historian Titus Livy quotes, he, with a chosen body of men, not only repelled the attack of those who had sailed out, but boldly rushed in through the open gate, and having cut down all in the part of the city nearest him, and having hastily seized some fire, threw it in the houses adjoined to the wall. Upon this, the shouts of the townsmen mingling with the wailings of the women and children, occasioned by the first fright, as is usual, but increased the courage of the Romans, and dispirited the Volscians seeing the city captured to the relief of which they had come. Thus, the Volsai of Antium were defeated. Town of Corioli was taken. End quote. Coriolanus had just achieved what he wanted to in the war. He easily gained the admiration of all the soldiers in the siege, commoner or senator alike, and had basically ended the war before it really began. But he was not done, and shamed portions of the army to stop looting the capital and to head out to support communists with the hope of arriving before the battle began asking all who joined to pray to the gods for such an outcome. Meanwhile, in the consul's camp, the enemy was moving on to the field of battle, while Roman soldiers were as custom of the time preparing their wills prior to gearing up and heading to battle. It was at this time that Coriolanus and his soldiers and supplies entered the camp. Coriolanus, as Plutarch describes, still covered in blood from the siege, made his way directly to the consul, told him the capital had fallen, and requested he and his troops relocated to the most dangerous section of the Roman front to help win the war that day. Soldiers close and far began to cheer once the consul saluted Coriolanus, and with a new sense of energy and the wind of momentum behind them, the consul sounded the horn for war and the bloody affair began. With Coriolanus fighting so hard, he would continuously find himself pushed so far forward, he and his troops would be surrounded and the watchful consul would direct troops to reinforce him. The main force of the Volscians eventually folded to the relentless aggressive attack the Romans led by Coriolanus were inflicting upon them, and with severe wounds, the troops asked Coriolanus to head to camp to heal, for which Plutarch says, Coriolanus responded end quote, Weariness was not for conquerors, end quote. And when the Volscians broke and fled, Coriolanus joined the rest and chased the fleeing Volscians down and killing all who didn't surrender and taking those who did as slaves. With the Romans now celebrating another victory in as many days, the consul received Coriolanus on the battlefield, where he offered Coriolanus much-deserved praise and announced out loud in front of the soldiers that Coriolanus, due to his extraordinary courage and bravery which brought a swift end to the war, should be compensated with a riding horse and one-tenth of all the booty collected from the war. His announcement was quickly and loudly applauded by the troops, as everyone waited for a response from Coriolanus. Coriolanus surprised the crowd, rejecting the large booty offered, saying he would only accept his normal share as the men who fought alongside him deserved their share also. However, he did say he'd take the horse. Don't turn down a good horse. No, never. The crowd roared even louder, and Lannis at this moment was likely the most beloved of his career to date and likely his future career also. However, Lannis did have one request which he asked the consul to free one Volscian prisoner who he had known in the past and wanted to spare the fate awaiting him as a slave. The consul, Cominus, granted this request and further called a vote amongst the men whether to give Caius Marcius a new last name, Coriolanus, which passed unanimously and forever on out, Caius Marcius would be referred to as Caius Marcius Coriolanus, which we have been using this whole time, but that's how he actually got the name. Well, he earned it. Yep, he definitely did. So with the commoners put in their place after Coriolanus' military display, and the Senate fawning over a new rising star amongst their herd, Coriolanus must have been feeling pretty good this time. And he would not have to wait long to be able to use his new standing and influence to put himself into the driver's seat for a possible consulship with elections fast approaching. With the current war with the Volscians ended, the commoners of the army came home to nothing. Their arable land were unsown, and without tillage, a whole growing season was missed. And they had no time to place orders with neighboring countries countries, sorry, for provisions as they had been at war. So most found themselves without money or food, and no hope to obtain either until the next growing season. Like modern times, in times of scarcity and economic depression, those most affected began to naturally resent the wealthy, whose lives rarely changed while the commoners would see wild swings in their successes and fortunes. Some of the organizers of the commoners of the time began spreading rumors that the Senate and wealthy purposefully stirred the famine, perhaps as a payback for recent seditious acts. Now, true or false, it didn't really matter. The people who had just shed blood and lost their ability to earn or provide food for their families were mad and upset, and there really is only one group of people to cast these frustrations on. Of course, we are talking about the wealthy. So with sedition in the air from this latest famine, made worse by rumors the famine was a malicious plot against them, perpetrated by the rich, the Senate was likely at a loss how a deal with yet again another brewing revolt of the people in as many years. Within the same breath, the Senate received an embassy from a neighboring nation offering up one of their towns to the Romans as a plague had wiped out or chased away about 90% of the inhabitants and wanted Rome to send a colony to repopulate the city and make it thrive once again. With the commoners now feeling comfortable in speaking out against the Senate, this also provided the Senate and consuls with a list of troublemakers they told would be part of the new colony heading to this plague-ridden, godforsaken neighbouring city, while at the same time issued a call to arms for a new war of the Volscians. Not out of a dispute with the Volscians, but to get the more vocal and dangerous commoners out of the city with the hopes the people and elite will form a new reconciliation on the battlefield.
1: So wait, let me get this straight. The commoners are angry because they have debts and weren't able to attend their farms because they were stuck at war, and the patrician's solution to this anger is to send them to another
0: war? Yeah, it sounds like that, and to a plague-ridden city, so I can understand why there would be, you know, a little anger going, to, going around Rome at this time. But before the consuls can enforce the call to arms, or promote it, The two tribunes of the people, or as they were known at this time, protectors, stepped up in what was likely the first time the tribune of the people opposed the Senate and consuls in the Republic's history, and mounted a campaign of half-truce to dissuade the people from assembling on the consular war grounds for a new war of the Volscians. At the same time, the tribunes made it clear that the colony would only take poor, starving people from Rome and make them poor and starving and sick from plague in a city far away. I think Plutarch was implying here that the people really didn't need much prodding, as the last war on their minds led directly to their current and dire situation, and before it was even rectified, are being asked to go back to war again. So the Senate really were at a loss of what to do, as the heavy hand of the tyrants and their methods was just not how this new budding republic wanted to do things. And to bring this whole affair into context, during this time in Roman history, the army was not the professional, regular armies of the later centuries. No, the Roman army relied on the population to stop what they were doing, pick up a sword and shield, and fight for Rome. Enter left Coriolanus to the Senate's rescue. Coriolanus, as Plutarch described, was not having any of the sedition from the people. Coriolanus dispatched the colony, and those who did not comply after being handpicked by the Senate and consuls were severely punished, and those who did not join the Volscian campaign met a similar fate. For what we can gather, Coriolanus basically led an army, rode into Volsian territory, plundered everything not nailed down, and headed back to Rome as a conquering hero with all the booty, corn, slaves they had just taken to the great envy of all those who chose the sidelines or their punishments instead. Coriolanus had once again, in swift fashion, showed the Connors that wealthy elite like him continued to earn their keep. Reluctantly, the commoners who were still mistrustful of Coriolanus began to warm to him and a cautious trust began to form. I think this group of commoners would never fully trust Coriolanus, but his continued achievements, which seemed to benefit all Romans, were becoming hard to ignore, even if they didn't like his actual character nor trusted his motivations. With consular elections now around the corner and a large corn allotment entering Rome, Curious of the vanquished Volscians and many troublemakers dispatched to the new colony, sedition in Rome, well at least those willing to publicly dis- display it, was stamped out and the people fed. Coriolanus announced his intention to run for consul to the private joy of likely many in the Senate. As was custom at the time for those standing for any office, Coriolanus stood in front of the people and spoke plainly to the people of Rome about his ambitions for Rome, while wearing just his toga, no tunic underneath, so he could show off his battle scars to remind the people of his merit and past achievements. Plutarch goes on to explain how this form of candidate campaign over the centuries were turned into a nasty political game of bribery, favors, and violence. By the morning of the consular election that year, Coriolanus was a safe bet to win. He was, of course, a favorite of the patricians, and even the commoners had come to respect his fighting prowess.
1: Chris, it certainly sounds to me like, thanks to his ability to win battles and bring treasure back to Rome, that Coriolanus is on the verge of becoming consul and reaching the ultimate height of political power in Rome that he'd been dreaming about since he was a kid. Well, to find out what happens next, I hope our listeners will join us next time for part two of The Life of Coriolanus. As always, thanks for listening, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts, and check out the website at plutarchstreaksromans.com.